Amen. There's our sermon. Let's just go. That was great. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel, for that word. Thank you, Jeremy. Yeah, give her a hand. That was awesome. Thank you to Andy, too, for editing that and for putting Jeremy up in the sky and uh, all kinds of movie magic that we can do now, thanks to our communications team and to uh, our staff. It's wonderful to be able to tell the story. I see a theme emerging today, too. Do you see that theme of he will hold us fast no matter what? that we can trust in what he's doing, that he is in charge, that he is sovereign, to use a theological term. That means that he's in control of everything all the time. And that's where our text is going for today, too. It's almost like Aaron and Rachel actually planned that. Interesting, huh? <laughs> Aaron is very intentional and thoughtful about planning these services. Most of us uh, here, or many of us, who were raised in church, how many of you were a preschooler in church when you were a little kid? Oh yeah, you learned probably some deep theological truths from some wonderful preschool workers who are heroes, who are teaching theology, whether they know it or not, by teaching us such songs as, I heard Dr. Sherman when he was here, one of his first sermons, well, uh, it was like six weeks into his pastorate here, and it was Racial Reconciliation Sunday. And he just sang a song that we learned as preschoolers, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. That doesn't sound too controversial, right? But the year was 1968, and it was a little controversial back then. And there was actually some uproar and some turmoil about quoting that song. It's a profoundly true statement, though, and it's backed by the whole of Scripture, of course. It's an easy tune, though. It's an easy text for kids to memorize. Just like Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Uh, little ones, what is it? <laughs> I forgot already. Uh, little ones to him belong. They are weak. If I sang it, I could do it, right? <laughs> they are weak but he is strong. I'm not going to sing it. I'm not there yet. <laughs> Again, that song is highly accurate, highly theologically true and accurate. And one of my favorites all time, I remember singing this song with kids in inner city Detroit when I was in high school running a VBS for kids uh, out in the, the park, the local public park. He's got the whole world. Where? In his hands, right? He's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands, right? That was almost singing. Had <laughs> a little pitch to it. <laughs> it's true. God has the whole world in his hands. I'm so grateful for our longtime uh, preschool and children's workers like Jack and Duran Freeman. Jack brings his little mandolin and plays it, you know, and the kids just love it. My kids have been through there. And Jeff and Betsy Castleberry and, and Betsy and Lil's mom, Sue, who worked with preschoolers for so long. Lil told me this morning that when Sue was dying on her deathbed, they surrounded her and they sang, he's got the whole world in his hands with their mother as she transitioned from this life to the next. Because that was a song she had sung for so many years to so many children, and yet the truth remains that God holds the whole world in his hands. And that's the theme that we're going to this month. Go to that title slide, Gabe. We're talking about the Lord of the nations. We're talking about how God is in charge of all creation. Ben, go to that title slide, please. You got that? 
I bet you do. There, no, the title slide that has says Lord of the Nations, God of the Nations on it. This is Ben's first Sunday. Y'all give him a, a break here uh, <laughs> running these slides. The reality is that God is sovereign over all the nations. It's not that one, Ben. Don't worry about it. Go back to the Woodmont one. That's fine. We're going to see his sovereignty on display in our text for today, Isaiah 13 to 20. We're not going to read the whole thing. There's a lot of terrible things in this text, okay? Uh, there's a lot of really brutal judgment passages that happen, and we're just going to fly through it, okay? I encourage you to go back and read it. We're encouraged to learn the whole counsel of Scripture. Wrestle with the violence that's in there. Is God unjust to dictate this kind of violence? No, he's not, because we know his ultimate goal is not to judge, it's not to punish. His ultimate goal is to save and to redeem. And we'll see that over and over again in this text. We're gonna see how the Lord directs the events of history to move creation towards his good, redemptive purposes. And as good as those purposes are, again, getting there is not a pretty process. Getting there is going to be messy and broken and violent. God's judgment is going to rain down on these nations of the world, including his own people. We're going to see in our text today how ruin and disaster would fall on five representative kingdoms, some of the superpowers of the day. Now you can go to that map, Ben. We're going to see that, that Judah is this pink uh, kind of uh, shape here. Judah is where Jerusalem is. This is the kingdom of David. This is where the, the faithful two tribes of Judah and Benjamin still remained. Then you have the northern kingdom of Israel, the blue kingdom. That's where the ten tribes broke off and kind of seceded and said, yeah, we're done with the whole Davidic covenant thing. We're going to go do our own thing and make Samaria our capital. And then you have the ancient foe of Philistia over here on the, on the west side. Then you have the ancient foe of Moab on the east side. And then you have off the screen here, you can't even see the mighty Assyrian empire who's been marching west across the fertile crescent, gobbling up kingdoms as they go. And they are now threatening the kingdom of Damascus. That's Syria. We know that as Syria. And Israel tries to make an alliance with Syria against Assyria. And then you have Egypt down here off the screen as well, the ancient kingdom of Egypt. We're going to see how God judges all of those kingdoms and says, not so fast. All these kings are playing this power game, and God says, I'm the one who holds all the cards. We need to remember that God is working again this steadfast love out, not only for his children, but for all the nations. I think sometimes we get so narrow in our focus of America, of Nashville, of Tennessee, that we forget that our God is Lord of all creation. And how does God see the world? Well, remember John three sixteen: for God so loved the world, the whole world, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's God's plan for the world. It's never his main purpose to punish sin. His main purpose, again, is to fix what's broken in our world. Therefore, we need to take the, the long view of history when it comes to both biblical history and our history to know that this is all going somewhere. 
that God is working out in his sovereignty all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So I'm going to fly through these chapters just to give an overview and a sense of what's happening here and what the Lord is telling us through the prophet Isaiah. Let me show you just an outline of these chapters. Then we're going to look at three key choices that are presented to us. So you saw on the map where these different kingdoms are. Uh, The first kingdom that Isaiah is going to pronounce an oracle against is Babylon in chapters 13 and 14. Just, let's just skip the, the next one, um, Ben. Let's go on to the next one. Babylon is, as you know, Babylon becomes this ancient power that rises up and actually defeats Assyria. And God uses Babylon to punish Judah even later. But they're not going to be the end-all, be-all. God's going to judge Babylon too in their pride. The ancient kingdom of Philistia. Remember the Philistines and judges? You get Samson who's killing Philistines with a jawbone. Remember that? They're an ancient foe. But God says, Philistia, I'm going I'm to end your rule and reign too. Go on to number three here, Ben. Let's just skip those texts. You're doing awesome, by the way. Thank you. Moab, the ancient kingdom of Moab on the east side across the Jordan River. God says, I'm going to destroy Moab once and for all too. But check this out. It's interesting to me that these are not just destruction oracles, right? They're still glimpses of God's grace. Some people say the God of the Old Testament is just this wrathful, vengeful God who just isn't anything like the God of the New Testament. But that's not true. It's the same God, and the evidence is there. Look at chapter 15, verse 5. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 15, Verse 5, it says, My heart cries out for Moab. God's own heart cries out for Moab. This pagan people who had attacked Israel over and over again, God cries out for them. Her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Eglath Shelashiah, for at the ascent of Luhith, they go up weeping on the road to Haronaim. They raise a cry of destruction. God weeps for them. God is broken over their destruction. He doesn't want to see fugitives running to anywhere. He he is brokenhearted for this pagan people even. That just blows my mind. He's grieving over Moab's destruction. He wants them to turn to him and live. He doesn't want to see them perish. One day he even promises them hope. Skip to chapter 16, verse 4. Instead of kicking their old enemies to the curb and gloating over them, God commands his people to take care of the Moabites. He tells them, let the outcast of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. That's amazing that God would command them to do this. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished, From the land. That's where this is headed. That's what God is doing for the Moabites. Then he goes even further and promises them a chance for rescue under the Messiah, the anointed one of David's line. Look at the next verse, verse 5. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. 
the Messiah for the Moabites. He's telling the Moabites, you will come to know the Messiah, the one who will sit in righteousness. That's who our God is. Let's keep going. Next up is the alliance between Israel, again, the northern kingdom that was all bad, and then the alliance with Syria, Damascus, in Isaiah 17. You know the truth about uh, what happened to them is in 722 BC, the Assyrians actually moved into uh, Syria and into Israel and they wiped them all out. They took them off the map. They made them slaves of Assyria. The kingdom of Israel was no more after 722. Finally, that brings us to number five, Egypt, the world's superpower for thousands of years and one of the most advanced civilizations on the whole planet. And yet their strength would be undone by the one true source of all power, the triune God. And what does God have purposed against Egypt? What does he have purposed against this, these ancient African civilizations? Destruction? Judgment? Well, yeah, maybe a little, but not ultimately. What is his ultimate purpose? Skip to verse 19, chapter 19, verse 19. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. In Egypt, a temple of the Lord. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord. That's the name of God. Whenever you see it in all capitals, that means Yahweh, the sacred name of the triune God a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender and deliver them, the Egyptians. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. Why would he do that? They don't deserve it. Well, guess what? We don't either. And the Egyptians will know that the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the one true God, Yahweh the Lord, and perform those vows. They'll be faithful to worship the one true God. Why would he do that? Because he is a God of grace and a God of glory. So what does all that have to do with us today? Okay, we just kind of flew through those. Again, I encourage you to go back and read these chapters, wrestle with what you don't know, Call me if you have questions. I'm not sure I'll be able to answer it, but uh, you're free to call me or Dr. Sherman if you have any questions. <laughs> I see three critical choices. Three critical choices that are confronting us in these chapters because nothing changes, right? I was talking with one of the Sunday school classes today. They were saying how relevant these texts are for us today because our, our world today is full of what? Military superpowers competing and jockeying for supremacy in the world. So how then shall we live? What does this mean for us as Christians? Well, we're confronted with three critical choices. We read about these oracles. We read about these promises of judgment. They're not just oracles. They are sure and certain promises from the Lord against these kingdoms. And we read promises of deliverance as well promises of grace upon these five powerful kingdoms. And, and yet we know that even today, we still see God's purposes 
being carried out among the nations of the world. I love the quote that the, the Logos class, Alan Wharton, our former deacon chair, found these two great quotes. One was from a political person who said, history is the sum of all the governments of the world making choices for their governments. And then the other quote was from an American missionary who said, history is his story. History is what God's doing. It's not about what we're up to. God is the one who is fully in charge and he is the history maker alone. So the first choice that we're confronted with in these chapters is about who we choose to exalt, who we choose to promote. Point number one, Ben, throw it up there. We will, we're, we're gonna be faced with a choice of following the, the culture of self-exaltation or we're gonna do something completely countercultural and exalt the one who is truly worthy of exaltation. You know, the, the culture of individualism in which we now live is a culture where the idol of self remains supreme. The idol of self-exaltation and self-promotion. But we have a choice. Are we gonna follow that culture or are we going to say what John the Baptist said in John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. Look at what Isaiah says in chapter 16, verse six. The pride and the arrogance of these powerful nations inevitably led them towards self-promotion. But Isaiah said, we've heard of the pride of Moab. How proud he is. He can't even help himself. Of his arrogance, his pride, Three times, pride, proud, pride, and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. Of course, the irony is that, oh, I'm so mighty and proud. The irony is that Moab would soon be right, wiped out and become a vassal state, completely uh, subordinate to the other world powers. Remember back in chapter 15, God promised that Moab was about to get attacked. He said they would be laid waste in a night, one night, their whole country would be laid to waste. But God longed to save them. Again, he promised them that Davidic Messiah, the one who would sit on the throne, 16.5. Remember 16.5, we just read it. It says that a throne will be established in steadfast love. Hesed is that Hebrew word. It means a dogged love that will not let go. And on it will sit in faithfulness, in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to righteousness. Those are such beautiful terms. Justice, righteousness, faithfulness. We see all that. And then we see in verse 16, pride, proud, pride, insolence, idol. All these things in verse 16. The choice is before them. Will they face certain ruin because of their pride or will they humble themselves and find a savior who is faithful, who brings justice, who executes rightly for them and for the world? What will they do in that choice? That would require them, if they go to the Messiah, to humble themselves. They would have to bow down before the Lord Almighty and they just couldn't bring themselves to do it, so instead they get wiped out. The same thing is true with the king of Assyria. 
In chapter 14, Isaiah talks about all these statements of the king of Assyria that scholars say are really pointing to Satan, the, the, the ultimate enemy, the one who is the most proud and the most prideful. Look at chapter 14, verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. That's what kings do. That's what those in positions of authority are often tempted to do. That kind of arrogance is rampant today, not only for those in power, but for all of us. You know, the, the rapid rise of advanced technology, we shake our heads at 10 years ago. You know, I, I didn't have a smartphone 10 years ago. I got my first smartphone about 10 years ago. How much has changed in 10 years? We as a society continue to trend towards privacy and autonomy. iPhone, iPod, iPad, I, I, I. The problem is that in and of ourselves, I cannot figure out how to do life on my own. All of our media seems to teach the same moral lesson. Be true to yourself. Be true to your own truth. Follow your truth. Again, the problem is that in and of ourselves, we have no truth. We're not able to cultivate a compelling truth in which to follow left to our own devices. In spite of all the technology that we have, we still need something greater, something beyond ourselves, something bigger than us to give meaning and purpose to our lives. The irony is that, it, like Jesus says in Matthew 10, 39, those who find their lives will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Same thing is expressed in, in Luke 9, 23. What does Jesus say? He says, take up your cross and deny himself. Not express himself, deny himself. If anyone would come after me, they have to take up their cross and deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Not promote themselves, but to pr promote me as the one true God. Think about the most popular influencers on social media. Think about the most viewed YouTube videos, the most watched Netflix shows, the number one hit songs. Jesus puts it bluntly in Luke 16, 15. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Man, that's countercultural, isn't it? That's gonna make me feel different about how many likes I get on my next post. Think about this, James 4, 6 tells us that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the choice is for us. Will we humble ourselves or will we continue to oppose God? Guess who's gonna win when you oppose God? It's not us. Look at what Isaiah says is gonna happen on the day of the Lord, Isaiah 13, 11. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. You might know someone who's so proud that they died on their deathbed, unwilling to surrender to the Lord of all creation because they would rather die, literally die, 
than to bow before the awesome God. How sad would that be? That kind of pride leads to certain death. Will we humble ourselves or will we learn the hard way? That leads to the second choice. The second choice is who's in charge of your life? Do you believe that you're in charge or do you believe that God is? In our misplaced pride, do we actually believe that we are in control of our lives? Do we believe that we control what's happening around us? Or do we know who God is? Do we know who we are in light of who he is? Look at Isaiah 14, 24 to 27. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? No one can turn back the hand of God. He has a purpose for this world. And he's not like, man, I sure hope this works out. (laughs) That's not how God works. His hand is revealed at work in this world and nothing can undo it. Verse 24 says the Lord of hosts has sworn this. That means that he's not sort of telling the truth here. Either God is fully sovereign or he's a liar. Which one is it? If we really believe him, then we're going to trust him come what may. You know, a friend recently gave me a book about the resurrection of Jesus. It's written by a pastor who's a seasoned pastor. He's actually a retired pastor. And he said, I always believe the resurrection. I taught it every year at Easter. Of course, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But then he got diagnosed with prostate cancer. Then he had to really make a decision. What do I really believe? about the resurrection of the Son of God. I'm about to die. Do I really believe that there's eternal life and new hope because Jesus rose from the dead? When the rubber meets the road, will we choose trust? Our theology gets real in those moments. Or will we start spinning our wheels trying to fix our own problems? That's a very real choice for all of us to make eventually. And that leads us to our third and final choice, Will we look to ourselves as the hero or are we going to look to God? Are we going to try to solve our own problems or are we going to allow the sovereign God to do it? Is your life a choose your own adventure book where you get to pick how you live, where you get to be the hero? Or is your life about something bigger, something beyond yourself, a greater story that you're invested in fully? What are you betting your life on? Is there a greater purpose beyond having that big house? Is there a greater story than, than, than achieving some promotion at work? Is there a greater hope than living in a great nation that is a powerful nation that can protect us and preserve our way of life? Look at Isaiah chapter 17, verse 7 and 8. In that day, man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. 
He will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram, that's the poles they would worship, or the altars of incense. Not the things of our own creation to worship, but to worship the triune holy God. God is calling us to quit fixing our eyes on the little world that our hands have made and to focus on his divine hand at work in the world. You know, again, we're all tempted to create these little buffered selves, as Charles Taylor says. And teenagers learn this from a young age. You know, I was a youth pastor for 12 years, and I, I was told this finally, that teenagers know everything. They do. They know everything. I knew everything when I was 16. How is that possible? Because their world is so small. And one of the best things that you can do if you're a parent of a teenager or if you're a youth worker or youth pastor, Evan and I have talked about this, one of the best things you can do for teenagers is to show them how big their world actually is. Because then it humbles them. You know, I got to take students overseas eight years on mission trips. I got to take students to inner city New York and Chicago and New Orleans. And it's amazing to see their little eyes widen as they realize, oh my goodness, you know, not everything happens in the bubble of my world. Their little world is so small that they actually know everything in it. And it's a humbling thing. It's a beautiful thing when you realize how big our world is and how big our God is. We realize how great he is and how small we are. Our God is Lord of all the nations History is not the story of human decisions, but of the hand of God outstretched, moving and working out his good purposes in all creation. And yes, those purposes may at times include judgment, but ultimately they will lead towards salvation. God wants to redeem the nations, to draw every nation, tribe, and tongue unto himself through his grace. Will you and I be a part of that purpose? Will we choose to exalt God instead of exalting ourselves? Will we choose to believe that he is sovereign, that he's in charge of everything, including every aspect of our lives? And will we look to him and his mighty outstretched hand of salvation in this wide world, realizing that he is working out his purposes and that we are not in charge, but he is. He's got the whole world in his hands. I can promise you that is true. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for even those challenging parts of the Bible where we see that you bring destruction and you bring judgment. God, we know that in our world there is destruction. We see ruin happen all the time as we pick up our newspaper and see what's going on in our world. But God, we choose as Christians to believe that while we only see one small part of the story, you see the end. We're looking at a mosaic from three inches away. And God, you're the one putting the tiles in place. God, may we deepen our trust in you. May we learn to fully surrender and let go. Quit trying to spin our wheels trying to solve our problems on our own. And remember that you are sovereign over all. May we renew our faith in you, O oh God. Grant us more faith. Forgive us our lack of faith, O oh God. 
Help us to, to trust you more. Oh, for grace to trust you more. We know it is so sweet to trust in Jesus. May we learn how sweet it is. May it be like honey to our lips as we trust you with every decision, with every aspect of who we are and in our lives. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to have a time of response now, and it's for everybody here. Maybe you've been trying to fix your own problems so much, and it's wearing you out, and you're tired. I have friends that are just exhausted, just exhausted. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will what? Give you rest. For my burden is light, and my yoke is easy. Maybe today you need to come and lay down your burden and take up the yoke of Christ. That means all that he is, fully surrendering who you are to him. Yes, there are problems that are going to require some work and some effort on your part, but it is God who wills and works in you and through you to carry out his good purposes. Will you allow him to work in you? Will you lay your head down at night trusting that it is him who holds you fast, that he will keep you and preserve your life until the next day, and that he will wake you in the morning ready to do his will. It's not easy to live a life of trust. I don't know about you, but I don't like riding in the car with anybody. I'd rather drive because I want to be in control. Some of you have driven me around. You're like, oh, that's why he was nervous. <laughs> I get white knuckled in the car because I don't trust anybody. <laughs> it's hard for me to trust. Will you and I lay down our fears and fully let God have the wheel? Jesus is not your co-pilot, by the way. Jesus is driving. Will we get on board and let him take us where he wants to go? Or will we insist on being the one driving? We're gonna have a time of response. If you've never become a Christian, if you've never surrendered to Christ in the first place, you need to do so right now. There's no better time to do so than now. I told someone recently that when Dr. Sherman preached here in February, he preached for conversion. He says, have you had an encounter with the living God? That's something I don't always do. But I want to make sure that it's clear here that if you have not converted your life to Jesus Christ, you need to do that today. There's no better time than to surrender all that you are than right now. I also want to say that if you are not a member of a church, we believe in being part of a family of faith. And I mean a family that cares for one another that loves each other with compassion, with clarity, and with community. If you want to be a part of what God's doing at Woodmont and join Woodmont, I encourage you to come and talk to me about it now. Maybe you've never been baptized, and you want to follow Jesus' example of being, uh, showing an outward symbol of the inward reality of your new birth. Whatever it is that you need to do during this time, I'll be up here at the front if you want to talk, if you want to come pray at the altar. Put your mask on. We won't have to do this for long, I hope, uh, with the mask. But uh, we are loving each other, loving our neighbors. And this is a great time to surrender to God uh, once anew all that you are. Let's stand and sing our hymn of response.